Let's get started, go back into Ephesians. I'm going to just, as we've had the habit of doing the last couple weeks, I'm going to read some of the verses we covered last week just to bring them back into mind and make a couple comments on them and press forward. So we were in the end of chapter 4 last week, starting in verse 25, we read these words, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. We spent some time last week talking about this admonition to be truthful. What does it mean in the body of Christ to be truthful with one another? And we commented about how much we lack truthfulness in ourselves. Maybe we don't walk up to people to just lie about them, but I think a lot of times within our own Within ourselves, we kind of self-edit. We kind of change the truth about who we are. We end up lying because we're scared to show each other who we really are. I was kind of reflecting on this this week, and I was thinking, like, what does it mean after last week's discussion for us not to be truthful with one another? You know, saying you care when you don't. Saying you've actually visited someplace when you haven't. Saying you're going to give of yourself when you don't. Talking about praying for somebody but not doing it. Telling somebody about the job that you don't have. Promising to Sabbath when you have no intention. Saying you're working hard when you're not. Saying you're doing okay when you're not. Saying you're content when you secretly covet. Talking about speaking a certain language when you have no knowledge of it. Telling others you live a pure life when you don't. Saying you're not angry when you are. Saying that you have goals but you've really given up. Telling someone your motives are pure when they're not. Saying you mean well when you really mean to gossip. Saying you want correction when you really only seek someone to agree with you. Proclaiming faith when you secretly doubt. Valuing unity while harboring a grudge. Saying you've forgiven when you haven't. These are all the ways that it breaks down unity because this admonition about telling the truth is not just a don't lie. It's made in the context of how it is we keep unity in the body of Christ. And we are so good about putting on a certain front when the deep parts of us inside belie what we are doing on the surface. And it's not just a question of lying. It means that all is not well so we can't be unified. And that is the thing that Paul is talking about. Here's the other part that we went forward and talked about in Ephesians, starting in verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly beloved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. If I could point out a couple things here that we talked about last week. We left here, in this verse last week, dealing with, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. And we said that in this particular case, Paul is making an admonition and a contrast between unwholesome talk and talk that builds people up. What he's really saying is don't engage in talk that tears people down. And we looked at examples of how that comes. And we said last week that that might not mean obscenity. That he's not really saying like we have read unwholesome a certain way. But really, he's not talking about obscenity here. He's talking about the kind of talk that tears people down. But I'm putting a place marker there because tonight we're going to talk about obscenity. Last week, we were kind of even making the bold statement that, well, it's okay. I mean, cussing really isn't that bad. Well, hold that thought for a moment until we continue forward into chapter 5 because at least Paul has something to say to that. But in this particular concept, that unwholesome talk, in my mind, is worse than the obscenity. Because it's tearing down the unity of the body. That's exactly what he's getting at. So you might put in that category something like gossip 
right away you might get to it, but it's even the type of critical language that I had you examine me on last week and see are we building up people in the church or in our critiques or in our pride, are we tearing them down? But that unwholesome talk of gossip, you know, we don't take it seriously. This week I was reading uh, an article by Dave Ramsey who runs a couple of different ministries, but one of the things he was talking about was unity in the church which is not something I usually listen to Dave Ramsey about. He usually talks about money and all those kinds of things. Those are his areas. But he was saying in his organization, they try to model the unity in the body of Christ. It's like, okay, sounds good, sounds flowery. What does that mean? And he was talking about things that they don't tolerate in their organization. And, of course, right at the top of the list was gossip. Right? We always say gossip, right? Because it's a sin that nobody will really chastise you over. Right? You go like, what's your biggest sin? You go, well, I gossip. It's not like saying, like, I fornicate, right? So you can get away with saying something like gossip, right? It's like bad, but not so bad that people will actually flee from you. But in his article, what he said is, in our organization, because gossip is found in the same list as things like adultery and sexual impurity, we treat it the same way. We would not tolerate somebody who lived that way. And so in our organization, it destroys unity so much that if you gossip, we will warn you once. The second time, you're fired. And everyone in the organization has a culture of maintaining unity to say, if you're going to tear people down with your words, you need to leave the organization. I thought, wow, that's the first time I've ever seen anybody take it that seriously. I wonder if we take it that seriously. I wonder if we kind of tolerate it a little bit or say, ah, that's not so good, but do we actually confront someone to say, stop. And tonight you'll see the confrontation language. All right? Then we focused on these other parts, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, every form of malice. Notice that what he's driving here towards is a sense of the self-sacrificing way of Christ and how we should imitate that. Be imitators of God as dearly beloved children and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Clearly, His view is just as Christ sacrificed himself for you. You live the same sacrificial life. And as we turn the page from these first couple of verses of chapter 5, you'll now see him switch from talking about how you should imitate Christ's model of sacrifice to how you should avoid indulgences, especially self-indulgence. You should avoid self-indulgence of every kind. Let's read through those for a moment, and then we'll start to pick them apart. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 3. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, or any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. So, let's break it down. Among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed. These are improper for God's holy people. Who disagrees? Anyone have a problem with this? Anyone need an explanation? He seems pretty clear here. When I was younger, we started to look behind these words to try to understand what they were when I was in junior high and high school. Like, well, what does immorality actually mean? Like, what's the definition? Our translation of Scripture said, there should not be even a hint of fornication. That's what it just said in my translation when I was younger. And we would look it up in, the, you know, of course, the Webster's Dictionary, because that's authoritative on the Scriptures and their original languages. We would try to look it up and go, what does that mean? Like, how far are you going before you run over the line and end up in the fornication? Like, maybe, you know, and it defined it in some way, like, you know, uh, sex without love or something like that. We're like, well, what is, so if you're in love, is it okay? Like, what's going on? His words are pretty clear. 
there should not even be a hint. We, we skipped right over that word. <laughs> we were trying to like, well, is this too far? Is this okay? There should not be a hint of sexual immorality. Yeah. I guess I would just wonder why that one's first, like of all the sins, like what is Paul's emphasis on? Why is it first? That's my Sex question. one is always first. But I want to know why. Yeah, like why true. is it always first? Well, in this case, actually all three of them have to do with sexual connotation. When you see the word greed, you immediately go to consumption, right? But many of the people who look at the original words that we translate for greed even note that impurity and the type of greed are all kind of wrapped in. He's, he's listed them in a way where they're not quite synonymous, but they're all coloring one another. So that the idea of sexual immorality, impurity of any kind, which is very, very related to it, and even the greed, which is the lust that we have for people and things, so they're kind of all connected, is happening. But the greater part of your question is, he's actually drawing a big contrast. We just finished talking about Christ's self-sacrificial way. And now he's starting to talk with the word but, he's making a contrast, but among you don't live in a self-indulgent way where you are the focus. And when you're thinking about indulging your own satisfaction, you know, just satisfying yourself, these are the things that he believes are the root that begin it. Now he's going to go on in a moment, but most of this passage is colored by sexual impurity. That's really not only the starting point, but it's actually one of the longest passages that focus almost exclusively on this subject. Yeah. If this is if this is all about sexual immorality, well, if, it, if that first sentence is all about sexual immorality, wouldn't could we conclude that the rest is? It is in a way. So you're talking about going to the next verse. So what he's saying here is, nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking. If you look behind trying to understand, we kind of understand obscenity because we still use that term very much in the same way. But even obscenity gets a lot of its meaning, both in the word itself and in the way we understand it, from using words that relate to sexual impurity. Like most of our obscene words still do that. And now you look at things like foolish talk and coarse joking, which are softer versions of similar concepts. So the foolish talk is kind of that, not just saying things that are dumb, but talk that is meaningless or that would be used by fools or is useless in purpose. Even coarse joking, a lot of people interpret to be like joking about things that is not quite pure or joking about things kind of using like a double entendre to kind of like, you know, have a sexual connotation to it at the same time while you're saying something else. So the, the theme continues even in there, but I think it's fair to stop and say, he is directly hitting obscenity here, where we're last week some of us were like, ah, I don't know, what's the big deal? I mean, you know, yes, compared to tearing people down, you know, that destroys unity more. But he is specifically addressing obscenity. And we don't have much of an objection when he says, you shouldn't be sexually immoral. Nobody in here is jumping up and down saying, I think we should be immoral. But his tie to obscenity seems to be like, you should not use obscenity because those are out of place for God's people. Yeah. Is there any difference in the actual wording in the first sentence? It says, but among you there must not be in the second sentence, nor should there be. Like, in a like varying degree of, like, this is not okay, and this is mostly not okay. I don't believe that would be supported. And I'm not an expert enough to say the reason why. And like I said, so I've, since junior high, I've been studying this passage. <laughs> um, Nothing in it that, that makes me feel that they're not in any way connected at the same level of being like a command, like he's saying this is a command. Morgan? I'm not thinking the Greek, but it's probably just an imperative, like, and that's how you just translate it as nor should you or, or can you or something. Yeah, and I believe it, it, both of them are in the imperative. In fact, this whole area, because we are now really knee deep in the paranesis, the ethical teaching part. He is really making a turn, and this turn in particular, because we've moved from the positive exhortation to the don't do this part. Right? He's just saying, don't do this. Okay? Anyone else? Yeah. What about the Thanksgiving part? Like, if you're tying like, the sexual morality to obscenity, foolish talk, of course, joking, like, what is, like, what's the Thanksgiving attached to that? I don't really understand. Yeah, he's saying there shouldn't be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, but rather there should only be talk of thanksgiving, like talk which is of thanksgiving. Now, 
I know as soon as I say that, somebody's going to say, that's kind of limiting. You're saying that the only thing we could ever do in our life is thank stuff. But he's really pressing an attitude of thanksgiving. Like an attitude of living in thanksgiving and praises and those kinds of things, as he says elsewhere. Like he says that there should be hymns and spiritual songs and thanksgiving, and that's the proper attitude of speech. Right? That, that we see that in, in the epistles, that same kind of idea, and I think it's very similar here. But how does that contrast with what he's just saying? Okay, I, like, I, I understand maybe if I'm thinking about obscenity, foolish talk, of course, joking, just as sort of that comparing to Thanksgiving, but when you're tying that into sexual morality, like, I don't understand how that contrasts, like, sexual morality and Thanksgiving, like, does that make sense? Like, sure. I think that's why our translators put that phrase at the end of this one sentence and don't tie it to the whole thing. And that's probably why they break it up the way they do, because he is contrasting those specific ways of speech. Like, he's moved from the action of sexual immorality to our action of obscene speech or speech that is not befitting God's people. Um, and actually, I think that word is actually the best translated that things that uh, the out of place, meaning not befitting, is a, like a more literal way, but contrasting it with thanksgiving. So you have those kinds of speech versus something that comes from thanksgiving. Yes? So in trying to figure out sort of why, not that we can necessarily answer the why this is sort of forbidden, do you think it's maybe because speech betrays action or speech leads, leads to action or is it just that it's not building up so why say it at all? Like... I think it's because it goes back to being a hint of sexual immorality. You could have a lot of theories. Some people do believe that obscene speech leads to obscene behavior. I don't know if every one of us would buy that. But the idea that it shows kind of that idea of God's people not being or living in this pure way because when you think about it in our context, a lot of our coarse joking, if we will, has that kind of joking that's like really on the line or maybe even crosses the line. Some of you have even called me on and go, I think that crosses the line. And I think that's very good that we do that to one another. But that coarse joking actually leads others, even in this group, I think, or even in any group they're around, to feel like, well, they're kind of joking about it. It must not be that big of a deal. Like, I do believe that's a consequence that we actually end up lowering the bar that he's setting. Like, not even a hint of immorality. We kind of tend to kind of like lower it down. You know, even when we give permission to one another, impliedly in our joking, we keep bringing that bar down, I think, to one another. When you say something that, yeah, it could be terribly funny because in the context it's almost so outrageous that it makes people laugh, and yet other people start to include like, well, you know, seems like people are okay with it. Like, maybe I shouldn't be so worried about doing that because people laughed instead of looking at me like, you know, none of us would stand up and say, I just molested my sister. And we'd be in shock, right? But we say things that are equally shocking in the list of things we cannot do in Scripture, and people just go, <laughs> right? So we teach one another, and we hold each other accountable. And if you're not expressing with shock when someone says certain things, then we're probably letting each other off the hook a little bit. Okay? So nobody's jumping up and down for their rights to be sexually impure. I don't feel the strong push I had last week about it's okay to cuss. Not that we had an overwhelming amount, but you, you want to cuss? <laughs> you just attached the obscenity to, to sexual morality. You were saying it was that, not really cussing. Because I agree a lot of the cussing and, and profanity has to do with sexual morality, but not necessarily all of it. And... Course joking, obscenity, yeah, like foolish talk. I, I don't even really know what that means. Like, because if you're just saying, oh, it's another idea of talking about sexual morality, like, okay, I can accept that. But if we're just saying, well, don't have foolish talk, like, I, I talk about foolish things all the time. Like, I, I don't know if that's what he's talking about here. Foolish talk is a little bit hard to nail down because as I read three different people's interpretations of foolish talk, trying to take this Greek word and translating it into something that we could understand. And while they could draw parallels from other literature and different things, it's not something that appears enough that we would have a precise definition for it. So the closest that I've heard, and I'll, I'll look at it again, is it's empty speech, but it's also speech that's like meaningless, so why even bring it up? But it still has that sense that it's kind of, hey, that's going a little bit too far with that silliness, right? Uh, and you're right, by the way, about obscenity that is closer to like sexually impure speech than it is to just outright profanity. But I don't think you could look at this and say, 
but on the basis of this, profanity would be okay as long as it wasn't sexual in nature. Like, that goes back to even the hint idea, right? This whole concept of, like, why is he even saying this? He's saying this because he's trying to point out that this is not befitting of God's people. Not just behaviorally, as you'll see in a moment. It's not befitting of people who identify themselves in Christ. Remember, this whole letter has begun with this long explanation of us being in Christ. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I think that along with that thing, like you said, like it's not necessarily saying that the fans okay. It's like, we can't read the Bible and just because it, says, it doesn't say something about something, interpret that, it must be okay. You know what I mean? Like, oh, that's okay, because the Bible doesn't tell me not to. That would be a very shallow faith. Okay. I don't want to spend that long, but like I also say the other way, like just because it, like if it doesn't say one thing about it one way or the other, you can't assume one way or the other. Because even profanity, like I can say darn, and for some people that's profanity. Profanity has had a shifting definition over time, obviously. I think that that's not really the test, right? To look back and say, what would be profanity to them? Okay, if we could define what profanity is, right? Like we may have debates over, is the word, <laughs> let me say it. <laughs> um, I don't see how we could say, even on the basis of these verses, that profanity would be befitting of God's people or that it would be anywhere that it has place. I think based on this text or others, I don't know that anybody would make a strong case that profanity befits God's people. That would be a hard case to make. Yes? Yeah, actually, I, I was more interested in the sexual immorality part, the like, swearing part, and um, that the reason nobody has said they have a problem with that is because you haven't really defined what sexual immorality is. So, you know, all of us can probably sit in here and say, oh, sure, yeah, sexual immorality, bad. We all might have different ideas about what that actually looks like, and since we haven't actually talked about that yet, specifically in this passage, you know, that's kind of like, you know, our silence is not a, a approval necessarily, right? It's just more of a, you know. The word sexual immorality is the translation of the Greek word pornea. And it actually was a fairly all-encompassing word. It didn't just relate. So even translations that translate as fornication really are kind of pegging it in a certain area. It really was meant to translate all types of sexual perversion and perversion from God's standard, not just what you might consider perverse. So it could encompass adultery and sex outside of marriage and certainly sex with a prostitute and any kind of sexual deviancy, incest. It, could, it, it was actually a fairly broad word. Um, again... Any kind of impurity qualifies it as well. But we're going to get there in a minute. You're right. We're headed in that direction. i got to tell you, I was kind of hesitant to do this talk. I was hoping, because like, the last minute I was thinking, maybe I could just shove this on Morgan <laughs> and, and, and not do this. I mean, um, to stand here up here and tell you the standard is really hypocritical. You know my testimony, and if you don't, <laughs> it would be really fun for you to figure it out later. Um, you know, my life was marred by a lot of sexual impurity in my younger years, and this week I was reminded of that in a stark way because, you know, we have, I think it's five or six talks on our website uh, on the subject of sex in the body of Christ, which is a very relevant thing to what we're about to talk about. And we received an email where somebody said, I listened to those talks and I'd like all the PowerPoints who would like to present those to our group. And I was just like panicking because there's a lot of very stark uh, revelations in there that I kind of forgot about. Um, so that, that's a place you can plug in to this discussion because we spent five or six weeks on it that we can't spend here that will answer this question in much deeper ways. Um, I want to kind of press forward a little bit and look at this next part, see what you think of this. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, for such person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. This part kind of ties together what we saw before, the impurity, the sexual immorality, the greed, and yes, because of its placement in the text, wraps together this type of idea about obscenity and coarse joking and says such a person has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. What do you think of that? Is there like a, some test? Is there a line? What do we do? We study this. Is this, uh, anybody bothered by that? Seems kind of harsh, don't you think? Morgan? It's very similar, uh, because I've been actually working through 1 John, 
there's very similar language, like what happens to the, you know, if you're born of God, you know, you get, don't sin, and so there's a real difficulty there. Um, I know we've talked, we've discussed lots when we went through Matthew at, time, at times where um, we kind of landed in the place where I don't think this would overturn Paul's numerous teachings of being saved by grace through faith. Uh, and even earlier language, well, I mean, Ephesians 2 comes to mind, but Ephesians 1 and being secured with the seal, you know, this idea of, you know, uh, our salvation is not based upon our merit. Uh, it's very difficult because I think, uh, you know, even when we talk about the idea of kind of sexual immorality, uh, I think Sarah Sumner is helpful in the idea. I mean, she's kind of comes from the position like, I think everyone's been sexual. If we take Jesus' teaching seriously, everyone, at least at minimum in thought, and most of us in action at some point in our life, have had hints <laughs> of sexual immorality. You know? So what do you, you know, does this overturn salvation? Is no one possibly able to be saved based on something like this? No, I don't think, I don't think so, but it's at minimum a very stern warning. Uh, and something that we have to, it's definitely calling us to root those things out of our lives, that's for sure. Yeah. One of the things we've seen in Ephesians is, even though Morgan's right, we have Ephesians 1 and 2 that really describe this kind of security of our position, and we just saw in Ephesians 4 that we've been marked with the seal of the Spirit, so don't grieve the Spirit. Um, There's a question as to what the inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God really is. Is it the equivalent of salvation? But these words are troubling. God's wrath comes on those. But wrath, and to, to what extent? Because again, then you're thinking wrath me equals hell. I don't think so, because I've read through all over the Bible where God's wrath comes on people he still loves, and he still go to heaven, or like the story I was telling you that I was reading, I think it was in the first or second Samuel or whatever, about the prophet who was still buried and looked upon like with honor or whatever, but God killed him because he disobeyed, well, took his life, whatever, however you want to look at it. He died. So, I mean, yeah, you're disobedient. There are consequences to your actions. God might not spare us those consequences. We're all sinful. Not one of us is better than anyone else. We all deserve hell. You're saved. You're not going to get hell. But that doesn't mean that we won't miss out on some sort of inheritance or that God's wrath won't come down on someone who's disobeying him. Could work. The only thing I'd point out is that God's wrath in this case, almost everyone agrees, is a future wrath although no one precludes that it could be a present wrath as well. In other words, discipline or consequences as you mentioned them, but that would be softening it too much to camp out there entirely when his wrath is coming in the future. The tense makes it clear that his wrath will come. So again, it doesn't solve the issue that you're talking about. And it's a very good issue to raise. Randy? Well, like, what about like all these people in the Old Testament, like people of God or whatnot, who are completely sexually... <laughs> That's a good question. Why, why worry about people in the Old Testament? What about people here? Like, what about people in this room? It'd be easier to make a list of people who are sexually pure in the Old Testament. <laughs> you know? Okay, let me make a couple observations to help. There is a bit of contrasting going on here. Remember, we had the self-sacrificial life of God and then the but. Some people fairly believe that what he's describing, and I think this is probably true, is... These people should not be among you. He's not actually just speaking to the people who are receiving the letter. In other words, he may not be speaking to Christians here. He may be speaking to non-Christians who continue to live in this way. He may not be talking about what we fear the most, which is, I want to believe in Jesus, but I still sin and I can't stop myself. All right. So, in fairness, some people, and I think it's correct, believe that he's speaking about the people who are not in Christ, the people who are outside the church, and he's saying don't be like them because they have no inheritance and the wrath will come upon them. But before we take too much comfort in that view, there are a couple other verses that we should know where he says the same thing to people in the church. In Galatians 5, 19-21, he says in this part here, he says the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he's speaking again in this case to the church in Galatia. He's already warned them once, presumably when he visited them. 
Now he's warning them again, you will not inherit. So now he's talking to Christians in this way. Here's another one in 1 Corinthians, again, to the church. So not to outsiders. Chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. There's that deception language again. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So we can take, at least in our study of Ephesians, contextually say, well, is he really talking to the church here? Maybe, maybe not. Some people think he couldn't be because he would have gone on for much longer if he was speaking to them. But it seems like it doesn't matter. Either way, if we're in this camp, he's giving this warning. Now, I'm not trying to limit to sexual immorality, by the way. I'm asking the bigger question of, is that what Paul is saying? In one way or another, that if we commit this kind of sin or we live this kind of lifestyle, that we will not take inheritance in the kingdom of God. Yes? Paul must have been a really obnoxious person to be <laughs> The reality is, is, right, we could debate, like, is witchcraft food washing Harry Potter? Or, I mean, like, there's, not only could you go to the level of trying to figure out what the heck these all mean, not just in their context, but then, like, how do they, how do they apply to our own context, right? But then there's, like, nobody lives this kind of life. So is this, you know, is this, is this Paul saying... You know, I'm going to throw this really high standard out there in much the same way that Jesus does, knowing that people, you know, people aren't going to hit all the time, but they're going to try, and that's okay. You know, and I, I feel like we're getting hung up on, like, well, you know, if we don't do it all one time, then we're inheriting nothing. I, I, don't, I don't know if Paul's, like, setting it up that way as, as a kind of, like, you've got to do it all or you're going to... H-E double hockey sticks whatever not swearing um, hell so um, you know and, I mean and I think clearly I, I, the way I look at this is you know, there are certainly things in our society which are bad to participate in and bad for us to participate in and sometimes you know you wake up from that and you, and you change your life and I think maybe Paul is maybe trying to highlight some of that activity here like look you know, there are things you used to participate in that were really bad for you and now you have this freedom in Christ, and there's all these other things going on, so wake up and don't do that anymore. Um, and here's why. But not, if you do any one of these things, you don't inherit anything. I mean, that, that would be just a ridiculous thing for even Paul to say. I think that's right on. And I also would like to highlight, and we'll return to the idea, it's not just about the action itself. That's true. I think we'll, we'll come back to that. But it still doesn't really answer... I mean, is he, is he really meaning this inherit the kingdom of God? I don't think he's just throwing that out like as a warning or metaphorically. Did you have a comment on this? Yeah. Is the kingdom of God necessarily like the heaven that's contrasted with hell? No, but it is closely related. In Paul's theology of the kingdom, there's always this idea of the tension between... So the kingdom is the reign of God, right? <laughs> And, and, and he's talking specifically in, in, in our passage, if we go back to Ephesians for a moment, he's talking about the kingdom of Christ and of God. But he is necessarily talking about that tension that exists between God's reign that is already existing, but the pointing of the fulfillment when that actually, when we're brought fully into that reign. So that would be the idea. So there's always this tension between what is now and not yet, you know, and that's kind of what's going on here. The reason I say it's not synonymous with heaven and hell language by itself is because we're in the kingdom of God now, and you know it's already here, but not fully here. So you couldn't call this the salvific heaven that you're taught that you would be thinking of. But you can't escape that thought completely because he's talking about this future wrath. Megan, I think when I'm thinking about wondering a bit is the difference between having some of these actions and being that person. So like the other slide, we have two verses. Um, you know, when it talks about those who live like this, and then when it, when it and the second verse, when it names all these different like people, I, I don't know if it's a bad distinction to make, but it almost feels like there could be a difference between like an act of jealousy versus like living like this in like kind of a more sustained state of evilness, per se. And it feels a little bit like that for the second one, too. So I thought your point was really interesting, Jeremy. And that's, well, I don't know, what I'm trying to slice the knife a little bit is what, what does it mean to partake in these acts versus 
to be that person or if there is any difference at all. Okay, Mark? Um, yeah, the only thing that's tripping me up is if we're having that differentiation um, from the now and the future, uh, the word inherit is in all three of them, and that means the future. It's true. To Paul, the full inheritance is a future concept. However, he reminds that we have the Holy Spirit as a deposit on that inheritance, which gives you the idea that it's in part already started, it's not the whole thing. The idea of saying that but you've been given the Holy Spirit as a deposit, right? Ensuring your future adoption, you're totally right. Most of this focus is on the future, but some of it has begun. Morgan? I think Megan's point of habitual sin is good, uh, but there, it still doesn't fully get us out of the problem because, uh, because if we look at our lives honestly, we notice that many of our sins are repeated right, throughout our life, um, which would be the definition of habitual. <laughs> so I think that's why Jeremy's point, we have to keep going back to that because it really seems like Paul, like Jesus, didn't paint the picture that gets you to more like Second Corinthians 5 where he says Jesus had you know took on <laughs> your sin and gave you righteousness that's the only way this can happen I mean, these passages have to push us to the absolute necessity of, of Christ's cross there, there is no way to fulfill this we are dead in the water if, if we take these at face uh, because we're loved with those people okay. you go back to the future passage um, the last one therefore do not be partners with them it just struck me. It also, we could say, like, don't associate with those people. There's another way to say that. It was a good thing that Jesus never associated with people who did any of these things. You know? Right. We'll get to that last part. That's why we haven't gotten there yet, because I think the language throws us off a little bit. Yes? The, the empty will let no one deceive you with empty words. Like, I feel like Paul's like, okay, don't do all these things, and then let no one deceive you with empty words. Like, what like where's the deception occurring and like what like is it is this like I don't know it's really confusing. He's saying let me be clear. I mean he's repeating himself in a way to emphasize this point. That's what that is. And don't let anybody contradict what I'm saying or don't let somebody lead you astray. Okay. These people are, are going to face wrath. So he says it in the positive and then in the negative. You're not going to inherit and you will receive wrath. Like these people will not inherit. They will receive wrath. And he's saying it that double emphasis is to make sure that people don't misread what he's saying. In fact, that language added to it is to kind of emphasize, like, don't let anybody deceive you. Like, I mean this. Like, don't let anybody lead you astray. These people will receive wrath. Rachel? I, I find it hard to believe that they're purely hyperbolic. Like, this is just a list of things that eventually lead you to the realization that you need God's grace, and beyond that, they don't really have any other meaning. Um, so, I guess my question would be, do you think Paul's calling us to be legalistic about these things and he want, he's really saying like you really need to try and follow every single one of these things all the time is that what he's really saying is, is Paul a legalist I guess is that my question with these ethical teachings you could read this that way and next week we will see that he actually pushes that point even further by saying you shouldn't even talk about these things if you want just a future look he's going to say that it is shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret. He doesn't even want people even discussing this, but we have to take that on, and that'll be next week. Let's not dive in ahead of ourselves. Monique, you had a comment? Yeah, I mean, I, I, like, I actually like kind of the nature of these verses because they remind us to hold the bar up high. I, I like that. Um, I always say that I think that we get so caught up with grace that we forget God is holy etc etc so I like that I think he does want us to try to do these things all the time what I'm kind of hung up on or wondering is which we're not going to get to today is also don't be partners with them because obviously we're supposed to minister to people and not look down on people so maybe just don't engage in that behavior with them but whatever it looks to be around them for the purpose of spreading God's love but also the fact that it's always sexual sin that's presented and I'm wondering if that's because it's the easiest for humanity to fall into or has the most pervasive consequences or I don't know because it seems to me that we vilify that in the Christian church especially in the other two verses how it says no man that has sex with another man there are homosexuals that consider themselves Christians or that believe in Christ 
I'm not going to sit here one way or the other and talk about their lifestyle and try to can you whatever, but they claim to love God, and it's like, we always vilify that, or like the person that has having sex before marriage, and like, they're evil, and they're wrong, and we don't look at all these other sins that everyone else is doing that are just as bad, and just as detrimental, and it's just, why always that, that, you know? Let me answer it and move on. That's Paul's emphasis. Right? Like, it's not the church vilifying it. He's laying this down. For good reason. We didn't just make it up. I mean, he is focused on this, and the three verses we have of no inheritance for you come right out of sexual immorality. Is it correct to assume that sexual immorality is worse than other types of sin? I believe it's, its consequences and its effect on us is worse. All right? It is. I don't think that it's out of our puritanical ideas. I believe it has a worse consequence on us. But we do tend to look down at the church on it in a different way from other sins. And it's not like, I don't want this for you because this will hurt you. We look down at it like, oh, you're one of them, or oh, you're so... But that's not in this passage. That may be the effect that we can deal with how the church deals with it. That's another talk. He's very clear about this particular sin. Yes. I think that's part of a problem why some people are like, well, I don't know if Jesus and Paul are very compatible because just want to talk about sexual sins that much. And also in the rest of the Old Testament, I mean, the big emphasis is like idolatry, pride, mistreatment of the poor, like things like that. And not, I mean, of course, there's sexual immorality and stuff, but like those aren't like the biggest things I think talked about. And I think it's, hard to say like oh yeah well sexual immorality like that's one of the most destructive things to us I mean I think pride is huge um, just selfishness in general I mean we do so many different things and there's so many different root sins at a lot of things that are happening in the world that are really destructive and evil so I kind of have a problem with that like this is the biggest consequence of this okay duly noted I think there is something to be made of the fact that Paul is contrasting what the church should do, especially in chapter 4, with what it should not in chapter 5. I think in all three instances where we see the, the inheritance of God's kingdom being something that is not received, I do not believe that that is because you commit this sin. I think it's because a better way to say it is because that Sin identifies you or you find your identification in it because it defines who you are because it's the thing that you serve and you worship and what rules over you. Where do I get that from? His parenthetical is very, very important when he's talking about such person is an idolater. We didn't really bring that up. That yes, what he's really saying is if you live this way, not just in your action, but if you are not in Christ, but you're in sex or in fornication or in adultery or any of the impurities, if this is what you are, this is what rules over you, this is what grips you, this is who you are through and through, you can't be in Christ. It doesn't make any sense because he's even using the idolater language for a specific reason because something else is the God that you worship. And I do believe that in this area, sure, the other sins that you mentioned, Brittany, like pride and those things can be our downfall. But if you've met people who really struggle with sexual issues, it is not something that you can get out of the grips of very easily. So there is this pervasive part of us that gets degraded it does over time begin to define a lot of what you worship and who you are and what you do. All right, So I don't want us to focus so much on what he's saying is, if you commit this sin, you're out. Although I want to stop there for a moment and say, that is not a license to use your freedom in Christ to do whatever you want. Because there does come a place where you become so using your freedom in such a way that you've lost what it means to be in Christ. Paul makes the audacious statement elsewhere, since we're the body of Christ, he says, would I lay Christ down with a prostitute? I mean, isn't that what you're doing when you're sexually impure? Since you are the body of Christ, you are laying Christ down 
with a prostitute. That's how strongly his word is stated. And most of us would be like, I can't even believe that language. Like just the idea of Christ being laid down with a prostitute. But that's what he makes to continue to commit adultery and fornicate and all those things, even sexual lusts of the eyes and all the things that Jesus referred to, that's what he makes it akin to. But here, he's focusing on our identity. Because that's what Ephesians is about. Our definition of who we find ourselves to be. Do we find ourselves by Christ or by these types of things? Some of us may be struggling at a real deep core level to think, I am struggling with this, but at the same time, I'm trying to cling to everything I can about Christ. I don't know that this is specifically speaking to people who are desiring with everything they have to be in Christ, but are trying to overcome the things that hold us down. Yes, it's true. There are many verses that talk about the fact that salvation is not by what we do. And I think we have to read them in here, but he has been talking for a good part of Ephesians about our identity and our being in Christ we can't find it in this at the same time. Philip? Uh, very, very, very few people's whole being is defined by anything. Because I feel like a lot of times we say, well, are you addicted to something? Well, I don't know. Like, well, can you give it up? Well, maybe. Yeah, I can. But we ask, a lot of these, ask anybody, any of us, like, okay, well, yeah, if there's any hint of sexual immorality, like, can you stop that? Well, yeah, I can. Well, then why don't you? But I was like, it's not absent from us. And so, therefore, are we these people who we are in sexual immorality as opposed to in Christ? Because it's, not, it's something that's still in our lives. Like, it's something that we cannot give up. or like, can but don't. Like. But the language kind of makes a differentiation for him. He's talking among you, church, there must not be this hint. But here, when he says no immoral, impure, or greedy person, he's actually talking about a person who is defined that way. He's saying, like, the immoral, the impure, the greedy... Now, you might say, well, how much do you have to be to be that, right? And that's the tension. So the most I could take from your comment is to say, there is a distinction, as he's saying, among you there shouldn't even be a hint of this, because people who are this will not inherit the kingdom. We might have a long conversation over how long do you go before you're defined that way. I don't know that that's even the point here, because he's saying, you've been warned, like, don't get to that point that you're defined that way. Is a person who commits the sin habitually defined that way? I still think they're struggling, but you, might, you and I might disagree. And it doesn't matter what you and I think. What he's ultimately saying is, not just is there's a hint, he's saying people who are defined in this way, who are themselves immoral, impure, greedy, those are the people that are not inheriting. And in other places, he gives a longer list. Right? He's not just saying people who drink. Like he would say drunkards, right? Like he's those kinds of things. Like not just people who have messed up sexually. He's saying fornicators, right? He's giving a definition of who they are. You and I might disagree on how to get there. And it's a totally different way of referring to them. Okay? What does he mean that you shouldn't even be partners with them? Yes? Um, I think it goes back to what Morgan was saying about someone being a habitual sinner. And because he's writing to the people in the church... It's like if we ask somebody who's in the church who's habitually sinning, who's a hypocrite, who's not willing to change, then why would you bond yourself to them? You know, and I think that's what they're meaning. It's not saying like that person who's a sinner who is struggling and needs to know the Lord and has no idea that they could be living a better, you know, stay away from those people. It's like, no, it's stay away from those people who have hardened their hearts and are in the church and corrupting the church essentially because of they're pretending to be. That's exactly right. Partners here actually comes from that word of like a business partnership. Okay, partners in some way in business. So he's really saying, well, let's just say what you said correctly that he's not saying. He's not saying don't have anything to do with them in the way where it's like avoid them, withdraw from the world, stay away from them, because clearly we have the admonitions about being with those people so that we can love those people and give to those people. Like, so that's the point. But the partnership does have to do with the unity. Like, if you bring that into the body, that infects the whole body. That infects the unity. In fact, you can't be unified with them. Why? Because you're in Christ and they're, in, they're not. And the whole theme of unity is not some, like, let's all hug each other and love each other. The whole unity has been building is in Christ. If they're ruled by something other than Christ, they're not in Christ and they can't be unified. That's his point. So you've, I think you've hit that. Did you have a comment? I would just say that... Um a partnership implies some closeness, some deep sharing with somebody, and I think we would 
all hesitantly agree that the more time you spend with someone, the closer you get to them, the easier it is to emulate their behavior. So maybe this is warning against that type of closeness and intimacy that breeds um, copying that person's behavior. I think that's right. And I also think the place where Philip was just pulling us back a minute ago is to say, I don't know that we can explain it all away just by the focus on identity and definition and what is your God. Even though that seems to be the clear point of this middle section, it still doesn't quite address the first verse, verse 3. And I think we should leave it there. I think we should think about that. I mean, I think a lot of us, myself included, are very comfortable saying, well, you know what? Jesus paid the price, so let's just charge up the credit card. We're very comfortable with the idea of saying, you know what, I have freedom, it's not about what I do, so you know what, since it's not about what I do, let me do what I want. And I don't think there is any kind of license like that in the freedom that Christ gives. I think that's an abuse of the freedom that we have in Christ to say, well, he knows I'm going to sin, so I'm just going to sin on my head off and do whatever I want. I can't find anything in Scripture that would support that. In fact, just the opposite. All the warnings seem to come out of the idea that you can't do that. I guess this is really a, this really is a pushback more just uh, where I think this gets complicated, is especially since we're talking about unity, is that you know a church may have a different perspective or interpretation on what does or doesn't count as sexual immorality, and let's just assume that we have two interpretations that are that are legitimate in a sense, like that you could actually say, okay, yeah, I'm going to listen to that. Um, you know, then at that point, it's not really so clear to say, you know, hey, we're not going to partner with you. Get out, because, you know, you're not. Um, so I guess I would just hold that up as a, as, like, it sounds all nice and fluffy and, and good. And I understand the point about the unity and associated, but, but we might have very different ideas about what um, that actually looks like and what, what someone might call out. This is not a question of interpretation. It's a question of whether you want to take his teaching as authoritative or not. I mean, like, if he says, debauchery, we kind of understand. Idolatry, I think we have an idea. Witchcraft, you might say, I don't know, is that Harry Potter or not? That's in jest. But I think at the time, even to these places, we, they knew what witchcraft was because in every one of these towns, there were people who were trying to say, you need to wear this amulet and do this thing and pray to this person and do these spells. Like, I think most of us understand hatred. Most of us understand jealousy. I think we understand what they are, factions, envy, drunkenness. I think most of us understand what an orgy is. So when it comes down to something like saying, like, no adulterers, nor men having sex with men, that couldn't be any clearer. You might not find it authoritative. But I'm only trying to highlight that it, could, it, it makes it difficult, in some cases, to talk about unity. A conversation on what that looks like could yield different, different perspectives, depending on what we're talking about. Okay, but some of them are pretty clear. Yeah, but that's not the point I'm making. I'm, I'm, I'm challenging you on the idea that you're then making the logical connection that that's somehow authoritative. You can question its authority. You could say other things disagree with it. You could say it was recorded incorrectly. All I'm saying is I would reject the idea that I don't know what it means to have an orgy or I don't know what it means to have drunkenness. Like, I, I think that that would get us off the hook too easily to do that. Yes? Meanings of words change. And, I mean, you can't say that there's no interpretation. Like, we're reading translated texts that were translated at different times that were, like, uh, documented in different ways, like by different people, and, and so you can't make a claim there's no interpretation here. It's obvious because I think that's really just not true. As well as words have different meaning, and that changes over time, over culture, and everything. And so some things like this people might not understand, and there there are things in there that it's really unclear, it's really generalized. I mean, you guys are taking my words too far. All I'm saying is there are words in here we don't have to wonder about. 35 different interpretations come to the same word for hatred. Like, there just isn't another word you could do. And the funny thing is we do often tend to look at a lot of other words and skip right over them and say, like, well, it doesn't matter about that word, but those words, I really need a definition. And that sounds a little convenient for us to do that sometimes, to say, like, well, dissension and factions could be vague to us. They probably had a meaning he understood very clearly. But I bet you we could find out the meaning if we just sat here and studied long enough. We'd go, I think there's a pretty good basis that that's the meaning. Well, I, I don't know. I think I agree with Jeremy. Taking it as a simple example, because it was real. Like, I remember when Harry Potter first came out, and most churches I knew did condemn it. Like, until it became popular. 
and then it was okay. <laughs> like, which was the opposite of it. Like, it was condemned because it was witchcraft. Um, and the, I know that's maybe not a church-dividing issue. Maybe some churches divided or I don't know. But it's still something that how do we be unified in something that we can take a word that you even said, we know what this means. But we don't. Like, some people saw... Oh, that's witchcraft. It means Harry Potter. Some people said that says witchcraft. It doesn't mean Harry Potter. There's difficulty in like how those things are understood, and so just making it clear, like we understand what those things are. Even sexual immorality, like we don't understand what those things are. Like people have different definitions. That's why there's conservatives, liberals, like like of all sorts of different ranges. And I think it's not a, a cop out of okay. That means we can do anything. It just means okay. Well, that means I I agree with Jeremy's point. Like how do we then work together, being unified, if we're not really, if we're looking at these and having different interpretations of, like, a word, like, even witchcraft, like, a very simple one that has a maybe not far-ranging things like that. Okay, what you just said is not, in my mind, a legitimate way to even create the problem. Here's why. It doesn't matter what you and I think witchcraft is. It doesn't matter what people think about Harry Potter. That's not the way you come to a text. He wrote something, right? We're trying to understand what he meant, not what a church thinks. Not whether you and I think homosexuality is right or wrong or whether hatred qualifies if we get into a fight. That's not the point. Because we're not interpreting our beliefs. What we're looking at is, what did Paul say? If we could even capture it, right? So we're still going to have a lot of work to do to figure out what he meant, right? Like when he's talking about witchcraft, like you have to go back and go, why was he even concerned with it? What was going on at the time? Where is this word used? Is it used anywhere else? Is it used outside of the scripture sometimes? Did it have a common meaning we could understand? Did some other literature use it? We're going to have a lot of hard work to do, right? But I don't think that we bring it into the future and say, well, today some churches think, think or some like do that or you and I don't agree, so therefore it's vague. It's like we got a lot of work to do with his language. Yeah. I'm not saying that that means this is less valid. Like, I, not at all. Like, I, I think what he's saying, yeah, that's valid and good and we should be looking towards that. But if we both look towards that and come to different like positions, homosexuality is a big, easy issue for that, like... I don't know, not to like, yeah, it's even like women pastors, like. Well, take the homosexuality issues, this would be the thing that everybody's jumping all over. Like, in this passage, I went back and looked a number of times, like, this translation has been updated because many translations just use the word homosexuality. And actually, that's almost too broad of a brush. The actual word, the best way to understand it is men having sex with men because the word men is used twice. Like, it's actually literally stated that way. So they decided... You know, let's update the translation and actually put that word in directly, okay? So, all right, so you put the word in directly. I don't know, do we disagree over what a man having sex with a man is? But does it break our unity? Only if I conclude that there's no way that you could believe this and still be in Christ. And people do that to each other all the time, I will say, and I believe that that's another sin, that's dissension. And that's exactly where you're breaking the unity, Right over something like this and saying, like, I, I refuse to believe you're in Christ, like as if I had any way of knowing that or judging it. But see, that's why I'm trying to stay away from that. We can't use the ridiculousness of today's people to look back and try to understand what he was saying. We make all sorts of goofy things. And if people break unity today every day, uh, yeah, we're clearly not the unified church he was talking about. We're clearly not the unified church he was hoping would stay unified because we have one spirit and one Lord and one Christ. Like, so does that mean the whole thing is broken? Like we just can't fix it? Yeah. Here's my thought. I'm very interested in interpretation. I think it's very valid to look back and try and find the context of things. But sometimes I find that I have to take a step back and say, we have God's word for a reason. I don't believe that it's just an ancient document that we use to figure out how people thought when Jesus... Like I believe it's supposed to be useful for us today. And so if it's that difficult to go back and we have to break down and unravel every word to where it no longer has any meaning to us today because it didn't mean what it meant back then. Like, I feel like there's supposed to be a practical application of these words and there's supposed to be some way of understanding them that doesn't have to be necessarily as complicated. Forgive me if I sound ignorant, but I don't think every little issue has to be so complicated that we can't possibly understand it in our context today. I'm totally not being understood here, so I just want to put that out there that, John, you're not hearing my criticism, and that's okay because I'm not being clear. My criticism is at a deeper level, and that is that the idea that you can somehow just read it and understand what Paul is saying. I'm not talking about interpreting a text because I have an agenda. I'm saying, you know, we could lay the same criticism on Paul in his reading of the Old Testament. 
Now, the fact that we just, you know, we hover around Paul and say, authoritative, and that when we can somehow go back and authorial intent, we can figure it out, we can know. I'm saying that that endeavor is, I think it's false to assume that that's some kind of perfect endeavor or that there's some kind of certainty there. Okay, that, that's what I'm pushing back on. Not that I want to bring in some other interpretation uh, because it makes me feel good and because I want to argue with you. That, that's not my issue here with, with this. Um, I would go back even further and say, how's Paul interpreting? Okay, what, what is Paul bringing here? And we, we, you have a certain view of the text, and I have a certain view of the text, but that doesn't uh, stop us from having a conversation still about it. Is what is it. So, so I think I'm being misheard, and people are hungry, and I'm willing to talk about this often. Okay. I just feel like a lot of times we think there are more tr- there's more problems in understanding what he said right, than, than we think. I mean, there are people who do this for a living, who just do nothing but read the languages and write thick, thick, thick books trying to reach them. And I read from three different perspectives because this worried me. I'll be honest. This was something where I'm like, what do you mean you don't inherit the kingdom? Like, I knew tonight was going to be difficult. And I really spent a lot of time trying to see from all different perspectives, is there anybody who can give me a way out here? Nobody disagreed about what he was saying. Okay. Let me close there if you allow me to. And we will continue next week and pick up where we have here so you can come back with even more of the comments.